0: Welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your wellbeing, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my 5-Minute Food fact series. I am Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, Any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions, and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with someone truly extraordinary, someone who has accomplished many epic feats. She is Katie Sarah. We've not met face to face, but funnily enough, I discovered that Katie lives in the next suburb. What a small world. Katie is a business owner. Her company, Sarah Mountain Journeys, specializes in customized adventurous expeditions to destinations such as the Himalayas, Tanzania and South America. She's a mother, a triathlete and a mountaineer. Katie has summited Everest, plus she's the first woman in the world to complete the 7-7. And Katie will let you know what that is during our chat. And to top it off, She simply takes it all in her stride and she is delightful to chat with. Hi, Katie. Welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, My pleasure. So, Katie, you've had a very interesting and dynamic career and I'd really like to hear something about it. I believe you've an undergraduate and master's degree in finance and accounting. Did you work in that area after graduating from university? Yes,
1: so for my my first job out of uni was in superannuation and that was in more of a master trust uh, type of super fund and then after that was working in self-managed superannuation so so yes I continued the sort of business and finance mm-hmm. side of it for about 15 years all right did you after did you enjoy that my first job was in a really big organization mm-hmm. and it was a big bureaucracy and no not so much yeah. I have to admit uh, but my second job was in a very, in fact, it was a tiny business when I started. It was the two directors and myself, and they were just wonderful, great, fun people to work for and with. And I basically saw over 12 years I saw that business grow from the three of us to there was over 50 staff. Wow, that would have uh, been at which point I, mm, some- it was It was great. And being a part of that, it felt like my baby as well. It basically had got to the point where I said to the directors that I can only work part-time. I have three young children because we had the three boys Mm -hmm. in almost under three years. Uh, You need it with over 50 staff. You need more than I can give you in the time. I was only working two days a week. And so I sadly... Uh, actually
0: resigned from that role. Yeah it's probably a good way to leave a job. I I had a similar situation where it was precipitated because we ended up moving to Hong Kong but I had a job I really loved and the only reason I said goodbye was because we were leaving and again it was a small small company when I joined and it grew and it had been taken over and things so I really I felt very connected to that company as well, but you know, life goes on.
1: It does, and yeah, it, it was a it was the right time. Yes, for me, yeah. Yeah, somebody else in there that could give them more time because mm. the, the role needed that. So, uh, but I remained friends with the directors, and uh, it then grew to over a hundred people, and and was then sold. So, <laughs> it uh, was a very successful business, now, and, and I great.
0: feel. So then you worked, I believe, in adventure travel, and you took over. An adventure travel company, which is now um, Sarah Mountain Journeys, and that specialises in customised adventurous expeditions, destinations such as the Himalayas, Tanzania, and South America. So, after working in the superannuation businesses, you obviously had a good skill set to run your own business. So, was starting up or taking over that business a natural progression for you, or was it a big leap?
1: So it was probably it was natural progression just because. So I didn't go straight from finance and superannuation to owning the adventure travel business.
0: Here, Katie explains that she was working for the business for four years before she took it over, and that during that time she was learning the business.
1: I'll take it over and, and run the business, um, and continue doing what I'm doing. So it, it was still. It was nerve wracking being the owner because of the liability and responsibility.
0: Yeah, of course. But mm.
1: I, I knew what I was doing. I, I knew all of the trips. I knew I knew the business because I've been doing it for four years. So, so yes, natural yeah. pro- progression. Yeah. Little a, a little bit of a leap to take it over and be the owner. But no, I was definitely I, I wasn't ready to stop. Working in the area, and yeah. by taking over the business, I could continue some of the wonderful relationships I've made with some of the, the people overseas that we've been working with. The ones I didn't like, I got rid of yes. and got new ones. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, so it was back, particularly in Nepal, the guys that I was working with there are just amazing, and I still work with them. And I've expanded the, the guys that I know over, the, over there and have many options for amazing troops. So.
0: I know that um, organising treks is an enormous responsibility. I've done a few myself over the years, and it's such an expansive job, I think. For the, for example, the trek leader themselves, they're, they're on duty 24 hours a day. They have to negotiate so many obstacles, physical challenges, cultural challenges, keeping the team, the local people, the paying customers well. Um, managing group dynamics it, it's a huge job I think so ha- have you led treks yourself have you led a group yes, of oh, yes absolutely
1: so when I was yeah. I was second guide on Everest in 2010 uh, mm-hmm. which pretty much meant that I was assisting guiding the group all the way up until extreme altitude so at that point obviously I hadn't summited and I wasn't an extreme altitude guide and I wouldn't have taken it would have been irresponsible of me to be um, being responsible for somebody else um, and my hands looking after myself (laughs) but uh, so yeah so I've certainly guided treks and trekking peaks and a number of a number of trips like that
0: what do you think are some of the most difficult challenges when you're taking a group like that
1: the challenges are when people will not be completely open with you. Uh, I guess my business, because it has always been quite a small business, I've always had, to varying degrees, if they're Adelaide people, then I can actually have a face-to-face personal relationship with them before the trip. Uh, but even interstate guests, I have generally, I've had a, a lot of communication with them before the trip. So that means we at least to some degree or other, know each other. So it means by the time we get on the mm-hmm. trip, if I'm the guide, then I'm hoping that that relationship and trust has been established. So and as I try and tell them, it's, look, you cannot be, you cannot reveal something to me that I haven't already seen or heard. Honestly, I challenge you to surprise yes. me. <laughs> I don't challenge you to gross me out, but, and it takes a while. <laughs> but, um, so... I really do need the clients to be open with me and when they are not or when they just simply refuse to listen, uh, that, that makes it extremely challenging because I'm not yeah. just mm. trying to be horrible. I'm trying to keep them not only safe but alive. And I think I'm saying to yes. you, you need to tell me if you've got a really bad headache or if your guts are just going each way. <laughs> right. Yes, don't really want to know about it, but I need to know about it. <laughs> I need to know these things, and then we can deal with it and look after you. And we, when people don't share that, and it can neither be because they're embarrassed, and it's often I think, as I said, usually I've got a good enough relationship with the clients that they're not terribly embarrassed to. I mean, I've had blokes sort of just side up and go, "Oh, you know, look, I have to tell you." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so it's often that they're scared that I will turn them around or and, and yeah. the thing is I always try and tell them that, you know, if you share it with me early enough, we might be able to deal with it. And you can keep going. If you leave it too long, worst case scenario, you can die. Best case scenario is that you're definitely out. We have to send you. So yeah. that's that's yeah. the challenge when people don't for the for mistaken reasons or they think they're trying to help their, their partner and so they'll push themselves that little bit more. Mm. It's like you can be a gentleman at sea level, not here. If your wife is doing better than yeah. you, don't carry extra stuff for her because you're a lovely man who's a gentleman.
0: No, <laughs> if you're actually struggling, don't do that. I know and I think it's it's a bit hard to appreciate when you're down here at sea level <laughs> what it can be like up there and what an impact the altitude can have on people. And also, I think that some people who are fit and young um, and proud can sometimes, as you say, be a bit embarrassed to, to admit that they f- don't feel great.
1: Absolutely. And they can be the worst because they're used to going fast. And when they've got some old chick like me saying, Look, Dode, you've got to slow down. <laughs> Yeah. No, actually you do, your body doesn't know what has hit it and what you're trying to do to it. When you've been to out attitude a few times, then you do get, you get a bit of a, it's easier to deal with it because you do it as second nature. But first time, you need to listen to somebody, hey, slow down, just let your body yes. take on board what you're doing to it. And if you do that, it will in most cases. If you take it slowly enough, if you do all the things that I'm telling you to do, like hydrate and, and eat, then um, pretty basic, you know, food, water, don't try and run, uh, then most people are fine. Some people are not, and it's not because they're weak. It's just because something either they're bothering a yeah. and that might kick in or they might be genetically predisposed to not cope to altitude, and that is possible.
0: If you're not leading the trek yourself, you mentioned earlier you've got some great relationships with people, um, particularly in Nepal. So, how do you find those people that that fit with the profile of your company?
1: So, as I mentioned, because I worked for four years in the business, I've established relationships through that period. Then, from there, it's been very much either. Uh, so, for clients, I will if I'm going to a new area that I haven't operated in before, or completely different type of trip that I haven't operated, then I will reach out to my network and say, look, I want to do this, I want to go to this place. So someone that I trust, can you recommend somebody? And then I will always go myself. Might take a few Mm. guinea pigs and that could be experienced clients, it could be my family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, yeah. So I, I wouldn't take new clients that are new to this type of experience with a new operator, but I've got some clients that are like, oh, that destination. So Bhutan was a prime example. I hadn't operated there. Yep. My friend, It's right next door to Nepal. My, uh, mm. my guy in Nepal said, yes, I know this operator. So I said, cool, I've got several very experienced clients that they just went, woohoo! Bhutan would love to have a crack. Okay, fine. You know, we understand that it's not an operator, you know, it'll, it w- wouldn't be loose but because I've had that recommendation, but there may be little things that, and there were, when I come back with new clients, um, then I would want to say, you know, we, we need to do this, we need to do that. And so I work that out by doing the trick myself.
0: And just to digress a little bit, you said uh, sometimes you take your family as guinea pigs. So you've got three yeah. boys are they into climbing and trekking? So,
1: yeah, so the three boys have quite different, and I, I guess maybe it's because they're all boys and they're quite close in age, but they've very much picked their own area that they really like. Mm-hmm. So the oldest, he does altitude really well, like disgustingly well, and he's six foot twos. So like, he's getting annoyingly <laughs> oh, wow. really strong too. and fit. Uh So he does altitude well. So mountains are what he wants to do. So he's done Kilimanjaro with me. Uh, He did the Mexican volcanoes. And then I took him to a 6,300-metre peak in Nepal last
0: year. Which one was that? Which peak? Very
1: unknown. Uh, It's called Tenkoma Peak and it's near Kachunga, so Mm -hmm. in the east of Mm -hmm. Nepal. Amazing trip, just so remote and untouched it's nothing like perna wow. or Everest Base Camp just we saw some other people but not many it was br- really lovely and no one had climbed this peak for I can't remember how many years and I don't think any Australians ever had climbed it because just because it was like wow so it was, was a really mm. good fun cool trip uh so that's my oldest my middle son is he likes climbing so we go to the climbing gym where he goes with his mates and his mother gets invited with he and his mates sometimes. <laughs> I'm <know> for that. <laughs> Kudos but
0: to happy, you.
1: <laughs> the 23-year-old boys are happy for mum to come along. It's kind of cool. I can still <laughs> climb better than them too. <laughs> only just. Only Good. just. They're, they're young and they're strong. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he's the climber and then the youngest one loves trekking. So he... And if he's picking wow. up cycling as well, he may well come and do – I do know he wants to do a half Ironman. He doesn't run, but he, he swims and cycles. So we might find him a – whatever they're called, aquathon or so the this, this swim run. So they very much pick their own thing.
0: Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, they've been exposed to lots of options, so that's brilliant. They're lucky. And I. I also believe – Katie, that you're winding back a bit on the Sarah Mountain Journey activities, and you're focusing a a bit more on charity-based fundraising treks. Is that is that correct? Yes,
1: yes. So I mean, even before coronavirus, uh, I was pretty much deciding that I've got some wonderful contacts in a few different charities that were keen to do charity treks, and I'm very happy to use my contacts and organise, facilitate, lead those trips for a, as a fundraising trek. Yeah. But other than that, pretty much won't be offering any more trips for more public groups. Uh, very, as I said, very much more focusing not only on just treks for not-for-profits, but I'm also on the board of a few and, and have yes. more governance and sea-level uh, <laughs> involvement with their activities. <laughs> so focusing on that at the moment.
0: So are there any um, not-for-profits uh, that you'd like to mention that you're involved with?
1: I'm involved with several. So obviously uh, having mentioned Bhutan before, that was for James and Mina muki and their site for all organisation and and that's just one that I've known James and Mina very, since our boys were all small. Stoked to be involved with that and we are planning hopefully next year subject to how international travel goes. We're talking about Mongolia for their next trip. Uh, so that'll be... Yeah, that'd be terrific. Oh, ...a really amazing destination. Uh, I'm also on the board of Guide Dogs SANT, which is a wonderful organisation. Um, they just do such amazing work and they've got beautiful dogs. What, <laughs> is there any yes. better than that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's um, a, a charity that is close to my heart because my brother-in-law lost his vision about 7 years ago now. So he now he lives in Melbourne, he's married to my sister and he has an amazing guide dog and it's changed their life. Oh,
1: some of the stories for the dogs. So uh, guide dogs SA does not only uh, dogs for vision impaired clients but also autism assistance. Dogs and also just, I can't remember, I should know what they're called, but also dogs. So we have a couple of dogs placed in schools which can help with the children. And we also have our wonderful yeah. court companion. He's, that's zero, I believe, our court companion dog. And some of the stories oh, wow. are just, there were one or two, especially the autism dog, but also then with the court companion dog that are just I'm not a very emotional person but, well, wow, it just, uh, it almost brought a tear to my eye and certainly the heartstrings were just, oh, wow, <laughs> what the difference is these dogs yeah. can make for a, a whole family when they've got a child that's autistic or in the court where there's a child having to um, give witness as to mm. terrible, terrible, terrible things that have happened and they've got this beautiful dog zero to... to Bury their face in the, in the fair. Oh, wow. Just the difference mm. these dogs make. Um, it's, it's incredible. So I'm so proud to be involved with that.
0: It's a really, really worthwhile charity, isn't it? Because clearly you don't like to sit still. <laughs> you're always doing something. I believe you're studying a Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science that clearly aligns well with your interest in. Physical activity and climbing and trekking. So, what prompted you to do that?
1: I've I pretty much studied something my whole life. So, I started. I started my masters in accounting when our youngest
0: son was one. So, you had tons of free time Absolutely. then.
1: <laughs> and I think I was marathon <laughs> running at that point.
0: But, uh,
1: so, yeah, so I've, I've always studied something, but ever. Mm. Uh, This, I actually started at university, probably about 12, oh no, longer than that, 15 years ago at Uni of SA, this same degree, but that was on campus and just didn't, wasn't able to work for me. So I gave up then and then that sort of around around all of that, I've done other courses as well. I started a master's in linguistics, that one I did, give up as well it was fascinating and I loved it just for the intellectual simulation Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was terribly expensive and I just couldn't justify
0: it. It is expensive studying I've gone back and done a master's in nutrition and you kind of need to know that you're going to use it. I I think think. you do So the sports
1: science I've gone back to undergraduate which of course is a fraction of the cost it is very much due to interest, uh, all of that stuff. Yes. Uh, there are a couple of areas that are sort of, and it's more research. I couldn't I couldn't be a personal trainer or uh, a trainer, I don't think. I don't think I've got the patience. <laughs> uh, but the research side of it, and I've done a couple of assignments based around training and altitude and the effects of half barrack chambers and normal barrack chambers and that sort of stuff that, there's a possibility that I could do something down
0: the track. Yeah, it sounds like it. It'd be great to hear your perspective as a a woman who's had a productive and interesting career and you've managed to combine your passion and your business skills. Do you have any advice for younger women who are coming out of university at the moment in terms of their career progression?
1: Just seizing every opportunity. And, I I mean, I think that's probably not even just for young women just coming out of university. I think it's for everybody. And Mm. to have an opportunity and actually maybe it is more for young women because I I do believe that women can be more self-effacing in so much as they will see an opportunity and think of themselves, no, I I don't think I could do that or do I have the skills. Give it a crack. Why not?
0: Yeah. Uh, in, in a way, you could think what's the worst that could happen? You decide actually. Yeah, particularly when you're young. Mm. Give it go. Mm.
1: You might make a bit of a fool of yourself. <laughs> That's, and I mean, I've, I have actually done this with a couple of our boys and I've, I've made lists. I'm a, I'm a Virgo. I'm a bit of a list and spreadsheet person. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like when you're thinking of an opportunity like that, even just to write it down and go, well, actually, what is the worst that could happen? Is someone going to die? Am I going to die? That's If you can cross that off, then you're already on the way to thinking it could be a good idea. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah. And I guess in your case, when you've put yourself in positions where you potentially could die, (laughs) taking on some kind of uh, new job or something like that probably is just really nothing. (laughs) It's easy.
1: (laughs) it, It definitely puts things in perspective and I think... But you also do need to temper that and and very much, I I think, in everything as well and certainly in what I do, but for everybody you need to be self-aware and know what your limitations and abilities actually are. But don't underestimate yourself either.
0: For all the young women who are listening, don't underestimate yourselves. And so now let's talk about the most exciting thing about our chat today, climbing and trekking. So what was it that drew you to trekking and climbing in the first place? So
1: climbing I only discovered in my mid-30s. Came to it or actually became aware that it was something that you could do relatively late in life, um, which is why I'm so stoked to have been able to expose the boys, at least to know that, that to know that it's there. Um, I was in my mid-30s yeah. before I did a, a trek in the Flinders and came across this big wall that... Had all this chalk on it, and we we actually acted. This is the first time I'd had sailed. Absolutely terrified until I was actually there, going down, thinking, "Oh wow, this is kind of cool." And then seeing the chalk on the wall, realizing that now that actually is better (laughs) because this this is fun. But you know, something physically hard where you're working out the limits of your body and hauling yourself up Mm -hmm. this cliff, Uh, and so so that made me come home from that weekend going, oh, I want to try that. And so that's where the climbing came from. Uh, But I I would say that, I mean, even in my early 20s, I was doing short triathlons and then by my late or mid-20s, I'd done an Olympic distance and then I had three children. (laughs) Uh, And then in my early 30s, went on... Uh, pick up triathlon again i think sh- still short distance but then then running so marathon did a couple of marathons in my early 30s and then mid 30s discovered climbing so that's when that
0: took over so you clearly got the bug so how do you actually train for climbing where do you go and how do you learn the skills
1: so it depends really on on what you're looking at doing so mm-hmm. uh, for a trek and a trekking peak you really just need to be fit and strong and be able to be on your feet for hours and hours, day after day. So that, that can really just be a hot... It's, and triathlon-type training is actually really excellent for that sort of thing. It's um, because you just want to have that endurance, then actually running yeah. is always a, an efficient, brilliant way to exercise. Uh, unfortunately, I've got a fused ankle, so I'm not really actually meant to run too much. Said, we'll get to said, that said, one a bit said, later. Listen, listen. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that, that was post-marathon. That was, that was when I started climbing the ankle. Um, but to, to actually train for most of the trekking and trekking peaks, then it is just cross-training, getting your legs strong and being able to go for days and days. So certainly to start with, I was doing a lot of long walks and hikes in the hills. These days I don't do that so much just because I've got so many kilometres in my legs that I really don't need to. Yeah. Um, I tend to be a little bit more efficient in in the training that I do. So it will still be cycling and running and, and, and a, a hard, fast walk in the hills so I'll find a steep hill and go up and down up and down that if I need to for a fast and efficient session. Uh, so so that's for trekking and trekking peaks. For extreme altitude, you really just need to do that more and harder <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's just keeping yourself,
0: being able to keep yourself upright at extreme altitude is just hard. What about the mountaineering side of things
1: the mountaineering skills yeah. they i'm not an extremely technical climber so i mean i can do technical stuff to a degree but i'm not highly 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 technical so everest is not i mean it's certainly it's crevasses and ladders and and, and mm-hmm. very exposed slopes and that sort of thing i have done ice climbing so rampons and Ice sports and that sort of thing. Yeah, but I'm certainly not a high level ice climber. Uh, Same with rock climbing. I I just picked it up far too old, so I can I can do a reasonable grade, but I'll never be able to do grades twenty
0: four or six. You'll never be Alex. Oh goodness (laughs) no!
1: I went and (laughs) saw that movie, and I took two of my children with me, and they said that yep, that was a great, amazing movie. But even more amazing was watching my face. (laughs) I know he survives, but just still watching. <gasps> oh, <Lord. laughs> so,
0: Yeah, it's extra. He's extraordinary, he is. isn't he? Uh, so yes,
1: yeah, so def- definitely not
0: that skilled, nor that crazy. <laughs> that. No, no, he he's he's um out of the box. I think he he's incredible. But in terms of mountaineering and ice climbing and things, do you learn that? Um, do you learn that whilst you're there? Pretty much,
1: yes. Uh, there's not really any. I mean, I've done. I've done a technical mountaineering course in New Zealand. Uh, so that, so, but that was after my first trip to Everest. <laughs> sort of up, up before the horse. Oh right. mm-hmm. uh, But most of those skills, yeah. You, you start on the high, easier peaks, and you learn how how you can cope and adjust at moderately high altitude, and then. Yeah, gain some skills and just make sure that you can look after yourself with ropes and crampons and mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff.
0: You just make it sound so easy, but it isn't. <laughs> it's, it's certainly doing the trips
1: and spending the time there. So and and I'm sure you're going to ask about it, but the uh, that was very much the issue with my first Everest trip in 2007. I simply didn't have yep. the experience or the skills, and it meant that at all times I had enough skills to be safe but I wasn't efficient and so I just wasn't able to keep going and I'd just broken my ankle. so.
0: (laughs) A minor problem. So on that particular trip then, you did make it up pretty high though. Uh, Where where did you get to on Mount Everest?
1: So that that was a very bizarre uh, part of my life. Uh, I had just summited my first mountain, which was a 6,500-metre peak in Bolivia, and then... A couple of months later, I broke my ankle and then and was rehabilitating that. And then had just started work for the business that I now own. And in mm-hmm. April, so a few months later, this is in about December or January. In April, we were running a trip, Red Nebras Summit team. And at that point, the uh, the guy who owned the business was away, but he rang me up and said, "Oh." We thought about why don't you just come on the Everest trip, you know, see how the expedition runs and uh, and what goes on? Yeah, you know, great work experience. But I'm still in a moon boot at that point. <laughs> okay, yep, great. I'm in. <laughs> Sounds good. And but definitely the intent, the intention. i would summited one six thousand five hundred meter peak, so. The intention of that trip was absolutely to see how it all worked because it's a massive logistical extravaganza, (laughs) the whole Everest thing. Uh, So to expect to help in Adelaide setting it all up and putting it together and then in the field was definitely part of it. And then for me personally to have a crack at getting to around 7,000 metres which seemed like a reasonable goal, an extra 500 metres and what I had achieved before, maybe a little bit higher but expected maybe only a couple of hundred metres. But go along and and see what I could do. So, yes, I did keep on going more than a couple of hundred metres above 7,000. I actually ended up getting to 8,450 of the 8,848 total.
0: Yeah, it. So the goal of that trip then was not actually to summit Everest. Your goal, your personal that, goal,
1: that's you know, that, just
0: to. Yeah, it didn't this.
1: seem in any way feasible that I could aim for the summit, as that I'd only summited one peak. I'd done some rock climbing by that point, so I had some rope skills. But my mm-hmm. what, third day ever in crampons was at six thousand. Six hundred meters on Everest. <laughs> but that, that is wow. not a skill base. That is uh, what you need for Everest. So it, it definitely, definitely was not something that I, in any way, thought would, would happen. So, and
0: Everest. But you did. You did go back several years later. So on that first trip did that ignite a passion to want to summit Everest or or is that something you've always wanted to do
1: I oh, absolutely know it was on that trip that well I couldn't train because I had the broken ankle which was mostly but badly healed by the time I went on the trip uh, so with a few months of pretty much almost no training prior to the trip no specific training for it and only one peak prior to have got that close to the summit just made me actually think well okay I think <laughs> I think I need to
0: yeah what if I put in the work yeah,
1: I, I mm. need I need obviously need to get some skills and then the training and I actually could have a well I do have a decent chance of safely getting to the summit and back down again uh,
0: if mm. I go back again so so yes and and you did I, Congratulations. Thank you. On On that particular trip that was in 2010, did you approach from Nepal or Tibet? So both times it was from Tibet, the north side. How did you deal with, um, on not just that particular trip, but any trip at altitude, how do you deal with altitude? Do you take Diamox? I think maybe one trip.
1: I, I know that, I can't remember why, but we had to crank up we had, we had to gain some altitude pretty quickly, so I did take a couple of half diamox on that trip. Generally, no, I do not take it. And for my clients, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I cannot go against their doctor's opinion, uh, but I, I'm trying being very careful what I say. Uh, my approach is that it is not, it, it's a prophylactic. So the idea yes. is that if... When I'm guiding, I would prefer that my clients were not taking Dimox because it just gives us, if if they've got no symptoms, then they don't need to be taking it. And it gives me so much more medically and pharmaceutically to play with (laughs) if they do start getting symptoms. We can start with, a. if they start getting headaches and or the minor symptoms and they won't go away, Panadol or whatever, then I can start with a half dose of Diamox. doesn't work. We go up to a full mm-hmm. dose. All that sort of stuff that there's more, it gives me some more leeway to be able to salvage this yeah. person's trip and, and get them better and have them keep going. So I generally prefer to not just take it just in case you're going to not be well. You'll never know if yeah. you needed
0: it or not if you just take it. Did you need or take oxygen on your way up to the summit? I think that's fairly common these days, isn't it?
1: By far the vast majority on any 8,000 metre peak uh, will use tree mm. oxygen. On summit day at a minimum, on Everest uh, certainly because it's so high, uh, yes. We yeah. were using oxygen from
0: 7,500 metres. And what were the conditions like on the day that you summited?
1: So our summit day, it it did go reasonably smoothly. The night before, we were at the seven thousand six hundred meter camp, and there was a huge dump of snow, which was worrying. Oh no! Uh, yeah, it was almost as we're lying in the tent that night. It's like, oh dear, are we going to have? To, is it? Is this enough snow and bad enough that we're actually going to have to abort? Uh, because at that point you can still turn around, and you've salvaged enough, basically oxygen supplies. That's the main thing um, that you could have another crack a bit later, uh, but it's not ideal because we sort of started on the summit push, and you do expend energy to get to that point. And then, but it it was it would have been salvageable if we'd done it if we'd had to at that point. Uh, we didn't. And the snow was certainly pretty deep, and certainly on some on actual summit day. So the net two days later, um, there was there were places where the rope was buried, and so so I always remember our third up, the head shepherd, is just bouncing around at eight thousand six hundred meters on this slope, refixing the rope and pulling it out and getting more rope out. Like he's pulling rope out, of his wow. backpack. Like, Nangil, what are you doing? <laughs> Got all this weight and he's just amazing amazing bloke but uh so yeah so we were able to continue got through that once Namga had <laughs> fixed the ropes for us and uh so the actual weather wasn't too bad there was a lot of snow and that slowed us down at one point but and then by the time we got to the summit the wind was picking up so we didn't I mean yeah you would only normally spend 15, 20 minutes on the summit in any case. You do need to get your photos and pat yourself on yeah. the back and then turn around. Uh, but it, it was starting to pick up.
0: You said earlier that you're not a very emotional person, but how did you feel when you were on the roof of the world there?
1: So relieved. <laughs> I really think that was the the most, that, that was the strongest emotion just because I got there this time. After the first time, where it was like, "Oh, I'm so, I'm so close, but I cannot keep going," so I need to turn around. That time, I was like, "Oh, I've made it! I don't need to do this again. Thank goodness!" Uh, and I'm feeling really good, so I've got I'm, I'm fine for the way back down. Because, of course, getting to the top is only half the trip.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think people probably forget that sometimes, and the don't other they? They're still on the side um, of the mountain sadly. On the day that you summited, was it busy up there? So the
1: north side would, in a normal year, in fact pretty much every year has about probably a third of the people that you get on the south side the Nepal. So mm-hmm. all of the images that everybody has seen of those horrific queues are always on the Nepal south side. Uh, and certainly when I was on the north side we also put off our summit day until later as well so there's on the north side it's bizarre how almost predictable it is that there's normally at least two or three windows of a few days and so we were check we were checking the weather to make sure that what windows were happening and we aimed for that last that the third window and so on that day i counted up at one point i think including climbing sherpas there were from the high camp at about 8000 100 200 meters uh so for that day from there up and down again there were approximately 35 people on the mountain where, like going and right. doing what we were doing
0: compared with those the photos that you referenced from last year's season that doesn't seem all that many um the, that that horrible um queue that traffic jam last year going up to the summit that was That was just shocking to watch on television. It got a lot of publicity. But I think it it could have a good result because I think now the um, Nepalese government is is implementing some more stringent conditions on people wanting permits to climb Mount Everest. Um, For example, I think there's a stipulation that they have to have summited at least one other Eight thousand metre peak. Um, do you have a view on all of that? I wish or? it was
1: another eight thousand metre peak. Uh, I believe it's only a six oh, okay. a six thousand metre peak. I think. Oh, okay. Uh, I haven't looked at unless they brought out something new recently. As far as I'm aware, it was like one other moderately high peak. Another eight thousand metre peak would be ideal. Um, I
0: don't. It'd be a bit of a game changer, I think.
1: It would, and it's it's actually the perfect way to do it. Uh, it really is, and I mean, brilliantly, it also brings in more uh, revenue for the Nepali government. Which, mm. but all power to them. I mean, it is a perfect way to get people to actually be more serious and not just wake up one morning and say, "I'm going to do one mountain in my life, and I'm going to do Everest." It, sh- it shouldn't be mm. like that. Uh, it is so much safer if you actually work up, and so as I mean, obviously, I'm obviously saying all of this having uh, not done that with my first approach to Everest. Uh, but as, as I said, my first uh, goal was only meant to be lower, uh, but certainly And and so from that experience, I can categorically say that you really you just so need to have the experience on how to look after yourself. Uh, I, I can proudly oh, say yeah. that I was able to pretty much be mostly self-sufficient on the mountain. I mean, nothing went pear-shaped and nothing went wrong. Pretty much the whole time I had my personal Sherpa with me, so I had a Sherpa in case things did go wrong to be able to assist me, only on summit day, so only from 8,100 metres and above. He helped me change over my oxygen cylinder at whatever point it was, halfway through summit day, and that was about it. Other than that, gave me a bit of a hand clipping in at one point because I've only got little hands and these big mittens right. I do not believe that if you have to be pulled pushed carried in yeah. any way shape or form then you just totally shouldn't be there
0: puts other people's mm-hmm. lives at risk um, and that's not fair just to achieve uh, you know a pie in the sky sort of dream if if mountain climbing is not what you've been doing how long did it take you on summit day how many hours does it take to get from the final? camp up to the top and back?
1: So I left camp at, I think it was approximately 2.30 in the morning and summited bit before, around 9am or 10am. I haven't got my certificate here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was, (laughs) it would have been six, seven hours or so.
0: That's extraordinary, isn't it? When you think Six or seven hours to go. What? What is it? Three hundred and something meters. It just. It just highlights how difficult that is.
1: So it's about six or seven hundred meters, um, and actually, so for that day, we there was another team. That, uh, there was only thirty-five people, but there was an English team of four, and they were moving frighteningly slowly. And so we stopped so on the second step which is one of the sort of like the Hillary step on the Nepal side, but mm. the second step, uh, we had to wait for an hour for these people to get through the ropes. Like it, it was totally impossible to be able to go around or avoid them. So we were standing there in one spot waiting for an hour. Oh,
0: how frustrating. Uh, it,
1: and at that point, it's because it's relatively early in the day, it's very much... and. and like with the images of the south side last year it's putting us to an extent at risk but certainly our summit chances at risk because you get held up for long enough and you have to turn around because you're going to run out of oxygen or run out of daylight or or whatever so so we had to wait for an hour for them
0: how cold was it
1: i believe from memory the forecast was around the high minus 20s with wind chill certainly once we got because some of it is a little bit sheltered. Once we got out into the wind, certainly on the summit, it would have been colder than that.
0: I guess a, a lot of it, I think, is, or not a lot of it, some of it is having the right gear, well, Completely it?
1: Yes, it, it's so something yeah. that you cannot uh, get the cheap version of. Your gloves, your boots, your down yeah. suit, so you just, you have to get the good stuff. Otherwise, there are bits of your body that won't come home.
0: You are the first woman in the world who's achieved the seven seven. So, can you explain to our listeners what that actually is? Yeah.
1: So, the seven summits is something that quite a few people have done. So, the seven summits is the highest peak on each of the seven continents. So then, the seven seven is then adding to that the seven highest volcanoes on each continent. And then, so the, and then, if you want, if you expand that just for fun um, you can add so the explorer's grand slam is so the classic explorer's uh, grand slam is the seven summits just the seven summits and a ski of the last degree to each of the poles so so it's yes, on the first woman in the world and i think it's about the eighth person ever to have done the seven seven And then so I did the ski the last degree to the South Pole almost a year and a half ago now, so December 18 months ago, and then I've now tried for two years in a row to go to the North Pole uh, and have been thwarted by varying uh, things out of my control.
0: Yeah, like coronavirus. I was
1: five days from getting on the plane for the North Pole Oh, no.
0: But you wouldn't actually want to end up being stuck there, would you? <laughs> if you had gone, to be
1: honest, if so, nor so we, we we're going to Norway and then up to the sea ice. So as long as you didn't get sick while you're actually on the sea ice, Norway, brilliant first world country, had yeah, that's got true. it on the way back. Yeah, well. And I was more than happy to quarantine for as long as the state government required on the way back. But, you know, it, it uh, all came into play before we even left the country this year. So, And last year it
0: was politics. Does that mean you'll be trying again or next year or when you can?
1: Definitely when we can. Uh, I am hoping next year, but I'm actually not counting on it. Uh, I think everything's so uncertain at the moment that... International travel next April, we'll see. I'm hoping.
0: Who knows? Who knows, exactly. So. If you achieve that, will that then be the grand slam? Yes. In terms of the 7-7, seven, seven, how long has it taken you, how many years um, to achieve that?
1: So I did my first of the seven summits in 2000 and. Uh, I was just before New Year's Eve 2009 so very end of 2008 and I finished the seven summits in 2013 and then Wow. Yeah. yes yeah, so I just had it was one of those things where it wasn't actually my
0: goal. Did it become your goal along the way when you thought wow I'm actually close to doing this?
1: Sort of did but, but it sort of it It gained momentum because if I wanted to organise a fun trip with friends, I had a few climbing friends that were on a Seven Summits mission. So if I came up with some obscure peak in Nepal, they might be uh, up. But if I said, oh, let's go to Aconcagua, right, Yep, cool, let's go because that ticks off one of their goals. So certainly there are a couple of trips that, you know, I want great fun people that I know really well to climb with. Mm. Okay, we'll go and do one of the Seven Summits because I know they'll They'll make the time and we can do it. And then by the end, it was, yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) I'm so close. (laughs) I might as well. And
1: I think the last of the seven summits for me were Denali and Elbrus. And Denali was a really amazing experience because, and I mean, I love working with the Sherpas and the guys in South America. They look after you, They, they are just brilliant. Denali was different because we were because we were in the United States, and yeah. it was a self-guided trip. So I was I was not guiding my friends. We were just three mates climbing the peak, and so we had to do it. We had to carry everything. We had to do absolutely everything. We had no guides, porters, sherpas to do all the stuff, or or uh, mules or yaks or anything. Mm. Um, it was all on my back. <laughs> So, wow. yes, for, for I think to be able to look back and go, yes, I, I did it. I can do it. vastly overrated. I'm very happy to have a yak <laughs> to carry lots of gear. <laughs> Bring them on! Um, <laughs> but having done that and knowing that I I, I could was uh, yeah something that was very satisfying.
0: Do you have? And this is probably a difficult question to answer, but do you have a highlight?
1: Actually, in fact, it was my first of the Seven Summits. It was Vincent down in Antarctica. It was a trip that was so it was was very different to to a normal mountain because we had to, uh, again we had it was all, all 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 down to us. There was no one else within hundreds, if not thousands, of kilometres. It was a team of eight. So, we had to haul all of our gear on on sleds. No dogs allowed in Antarctica. So, being on the little twin otter with the team of eight and our sleds and what looked like tons of gear, <laughs> I, I remember sitting on that plane thinking, oh, I, I just don't know. Like that first, it's not something you can do here in Adelaide to have a 50 plus kilo sled behind you on your skis and pull it for length of time. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I do like haul tires and all of that ridiculous looking stuff, but it's still completely different to pulling an actual sled. So I'm sitting on this little plane thinking that first step, am I going to be able to pull this thing? Am I actually going to, to move it <laughs> that That's the first step, let alone the kilometers that I'm going to have to haul it after that. And am I actually going to be able to do it? Or Am I going to be letting the whole chain down? And I remember that just vividly, sitting there. But I did. I got off the plane, and then I could pull the sled. And then so on that trip, the, the highlight that I'm, I'm working up to was we get to the summit, and uh, one of the guys who I ended up doing all of the seven summits with. Um, we had about four of us approaching the summit together, pretty much together, but we we're just in a in a line. And he's, he turns around and he's this six foot seven Australian German guy that can drink his body weight in beer and he's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful friend. And he turns to me and says, Katie, you've got to be first on the summit. Power to weight ratio. You're just a legend, off you go." I was, like, <laughs> oh, I, it, I was so proud of that. It was just like, "Yeah, I'm the five foot nothing chick, only only female as always on the team," and. Um, this wonderful man who's be- who has become a very good friend. Uh, just not that, go on, you deserve first foot on the stomach.
0: Oh, that's incredible. I think the friendships that you form on trips like that um, where you're dealing with extreme circumstances there, I mean, there's nothing to hide, is there? So you, you get the whole person. So I think they're very strong, those bonds you create. Because
1: you see the absolute best and the absolute worst of people and, uh, those ones that yeah. just shine in those sorts of circumstances
0: have you ever experienced um a really dangerous or scary situation that you've that's really worried you
1: again again i actually have to go back to the vinson antarctica trip uh this trip for me was after the first everest trip and a part of my sort of skills, acquisition, uh, building up a foundation uh, to be able to think about going back to Everest again. And uh, we are incredibly remote down in Antarctica. And, again, another memory from that one is before I even left Australia, there was a story, it was one of the Australian bases where a couple of young lads who were working on the base had gone out being silly on a couple of skidoos, and one of them's had an accident, smashed his pelvis to bits, and after three weeks yeah. he's stable but in a critical condition, and he's still stuck down there on the base because no, they couldn't get in to airlift him out. <laughs> so I've got this sort of story that had happened just before I left, which just really brought home to me how remote a place I was going in that if something if something goes wrong, it even if it's seen mm. it would be minor here, it's huge down there.
0: Yeah, and especially I think um, I assume you were leaving your children behind on this trip too. So there's that added um, fear, I guess, in the back of your mind that you're responsible for other people. Oh, as absolutely. Well.
1: And I had I've always promised you know, I, I am going to come home. I'm not. It's not summit or die or anything like that. I will take all care that I can. But then so having having that um, story in mind from before I left on the Antarctic trip, there's this particular point in the trip where it was a part of the terrain that we had to go over again and again several times because we are load carrying up to another camp and it was steep and it was ice and the guy, the guy, the guide at one point said, "Oh, look, you know, you don't want to fall that way because yeah, you'd die. Oh, that way, yeah, that way, yeah, yeah. Just don't fall because you're right. <laughs> right." And the ice just felt so unstable. This, this, it was sort of a snowy, crackly ice, and it was right. just horrible. And we're carrying really heavy loads up this steep ice with no ropes.
0: <laughs> Sounds terrifying to it me. It was more
1: deep breathing than any childbirth. <laughs> it was uh, every step, take it carefully, think about it. There's no way you can you catch a cramp crampon, you know, do just a momentary lapse was going to be bad. Just make sure every step was stable
0: and steady. So it was mentally exhausting as well. And a heavy obviously. load on my back as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think we must have gone up and down that that section at least several times, and that's not exaggerating. It feels like about twenty times, but seriously, it would
0: have been four or five. It was hell, oh, wow. horrible. <laughs> and in terms of well-being, I'd like to just you know expand on that a little bit since this is a well-being podcast. So when you have uh, taken a group of clients on a trek have you noticed any positive impacts on them uh, just as you know as a personal observation of what you've seen well, the sense of
1: achievement of uh, the experience the experience that they've had just because they're in an amazing place but then you throw on top of that the fact that they're doing especially the clients that have never done anything remotely like this before uh the, the sense of achievement of the days up day after days of trekking, camping, no showers for however long. Uh, it's it's a big thing for a lot of people to achieve and to, to see many of the clients that just were uncertain how they would go with those sorts of conditions come out the other end just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed <laughs> and just leaping out of their yeah. skin with excitement at, at how they've come through it and I mean they've all had their their low points because there's some point in a trip that's if it's long enough and it's high enough you're going to feel like rubbish (laughs) as you would at some point.
0: Yeah on on the trek I did there was 16 of us in the group and I think at one point pretty much everybody was sick uh, with usually with some kind of a sore Mm -hmm. chesty kind of thing and just felt lousy and no one got so sick they had to go back. But there was always, for everybody on the trip, there was a few days where they just thought, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I here? This is oh, hard. Oh, absolutely, yeah,
1: and that's entirely normal. And even if you're not actually feeling sick, you'll just feel tired because it's so out yeah. of the norm for the majority of people. So, it's, uh, so, yeah, it's to see people that never knew that they could do something like that, come through it with flying colours, there's a couple of clients in particular that I can think of that even when that you knew that they were just feeling so tired, you turn around and look at them, they'd give you a smile. And it was like, oh, <laughs> they're getting through it, you know, they're, they're just soldiering on and they're just being the best possible person they can be. It's uh, it, it's, it's very rewarding seeing clients like that.
0: Yeah. And I think for people it does give them a sense of uh, self-confidence when they've achieved a goal like that. They've, You know, they've really had to battle against the physical elements and the, the mental elements as well in many cases when you are feeling a bit lousy and you dream about being home in your nice soft bed.
1: Yeah, yeah look, it, it uh, really gives you a lot. When we were talking about self-awareness right at the beginning or early on when we were chatting that uh, – it makes you aware of what you can do and the, the barriers that you can just push on through that you wouldn't normally think in nice day-to-day life at home that uh, you could you could do that. And uh, I think it gives you a new awareness of what you're capable of and thus the confidence when you do come home to be able to push a bit harder and, and keep on track.
0: Um, yeah. I think also a really um, positive aspect of doing a trek is just being out in nature. I think that's because, you know, it's so easy to be disconnected from nature in our day-to-day life and just being fully immersed and camping in tents and it really makes you feel good.
1: And, and you'd, be, um, you'd be able to uh, provide the, the science and the links behind it, um, I'm sure, but so many studies have shown that just being outdoors, being outside – is uh just your
0: whole well being has an enormous effect. An enormous effect. It, it, it does. Happens. And I think one of one of the things I loved about the trip I did in Nepal with my sister was just the vastness and the age of it all. It's so majestic and you just feel like you're in this magical place and you you sort of know you're just a tiny piece of this big puzzle. It it was, it was just kind of awe-inspiring. I can't really find the right words to describe it, but there is something bigger than all of us out there. That's kind of how I felt. No,
1: I guess I agree completely. It, uh, again, I think I said it earlier on as well that uh, you just get a different perspective on what really is important.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. they certainly
1: coined the term first world problems. It's like, oh, yeah, this doesn't work and the internet's not fast enough. You've been to Nepal and you see the conditions people live in with big smiles on their faces and you go, yeah, first world problems.
0: Oh, absolutely. It does give you a a very big dose of perspective, I think. Um, Have you been influenced by uh, the people you've come into contact with in terms of their I guess, their spiritual beliefs like Buddhism and things like that. Has that had any impact on you over the years?
1: I certainly do love the Buddhist approach. Uh, I guess personally, for my own beliefs, I do struggle with some of the concepts. But the... Mm,
0: Me too. (laughs) Uh, Like karma is the one I can't get my head around. But anyway.
1: And I don't know. I'm I'm a bit of of a believer in karma. There are times when I really hope karma (laughs) is is a thing. Uh, but certainly the belief in being good to people, being open, being the best person you can, uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot of beliefs in there that I try and uh, live within my life. But I guess I, I think it's just it it probably just comes down to a very basic love of nature,
0: and that becomes my religion. <laughs> As you can tell from our conversation so far, Katie is motivated and goal-driven. When her planned trip to the North Pole was cancelled this year, she needed another challenge. So why not do an Ironman, even if she has a fused ankle? So next, we chat about that.
1: I, I needed a goal and it seemed that the most likely thing that I could aim for, that I could do, that at some point would be available, would be an Ironman so having had a look at the calendar, so I've done. So having done two, I figured well, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I know what I'm in for, uh, but it meant that well. There's having looked at the calendar, I thought well, I can hope for one in September if that is actually able to be run. I'm aiming for that. If not December,
0: do you? put together your own training plan or do you have someone who does that for you an Ironman is
1: something that is a little bit too big for me so anything else I will train myself Uh, an Ironman is a lot more specific and yes I I had an Ironman coach when I did the two a few years ago and so I've re-engaged his services to to uh, thrash me.
0: Yes, I, I do the same. I have a coach, uh, Nick Muxlow. His name is, he's been on the podcast a few times. Finally, it's probably time to wrap up now. Um, I like to ask all my guests, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being. what would they be? Just any two things?
1: Oh, absolutely. The easy one is get outdoors. Just Every opportunity. If you can only walk around the block, then walk around the block. But if you can get a little bit further afield into parklands, or even better, the hills. Just that is just such a, an amazing thing. And if you can't get out to walk, hopefully you can run. Running, running for me, which it's it, these days it's my treat. It's um, because of my ankle. But it is just—it is my therapy. It's
0: yeah, I uh, totally agree. Mm. So getting
1: out and getting moving—I uh, just think it's—it's—it's it's, it's good for everything. It really is. Yeah. It's good for mental well-being, physical well-being. It's—it's uh, it's something that should be in everybody's life, however they can do it. They don't have to be running three kilo- three-minute kilometers or or whatever. It's—it's uh, it's just getting out and moving. Yeah. whatever you can do, and that's an absolute essential as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then I guess the second one is don't underestimate yourself. Oh, that's
0: great, yeah.
1: Give, give things a go, and, and, I, and I think I talked about this before, but, yeah, as I said, don't underestimate yourself. Have some self-awareness, but don't. you're never going to learn by only attempting things that you can do easily. When you fail something, How much do you learn?
0: Yeah, very true. You learn a
1: lot from when you actually don't succeed. So uh, have a go and and you'll either succeed or you'll learn a lot.
0: Yes, and possibly (laughs) try again. (laughs) Exactly. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you.
1: Absolute pleasure, Amanda. Thank you for the invitation. Thank
0: Thank you for listening today. What an impressive person. What I liked about listening to Katie's story is her obvious determination and the methodical way she achieves her goals. She wanted to climb Everest, so she set about acquiring the skills to give herself the best chance of success. I think that's probably a very good way to approach most goals that you have in your life. I will put a link to Sarah Mountain Journey's website in the show notes where you can see the kinds of trips that they have offered. So you can subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please do feel free to suggest topics that you'd like to learn more about or people that you'd like to hear interviewed, and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love, We put in a lot of time, money and effort behind the scenes. So if you enjoy Amanda's Wellbeing podcast and would like to make a contribution, you can do so via Patreon, PayPal or by Amazon. Simply go to the contribute page on my website. I'd also like to let you know that I am taking a short three week season break to give myself some time to work on some good new content for you. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will help me source excellent guests. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.